The following sermon was delivered on November 8th, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled A Charge to a Gospel Minister on 1 Timothy 1, 18-20. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The very first lady that our team visited yesterday, we asked her, for what should we pray? She said, pray for the peace of our nation. There's a few things, I guess, more important right now for us to pray. Our nation, indeed, is in chaos. And there's lots of different reasons, but we could boil it down principally that our nation is in chaos because we're not living by our laws and by our Constitution. Our nation's in chaos because we're living by the autonomy of different people in different places. And we are ignoring uh, the blueprint given to us by founding fathers. We're ignoring the reality of law when even courts make law rather than enforce or rightly interpret law. And thus our country's in shambles. And it's primarily in shambles because of lawlessness because of refusal to live by the laws of our land and our constitution. But that's an analogy for the shape of the church today as well. One of the things that we learned yesterday was the terrible condition of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our community. Appalling the things, the stories that we were told of a godless and immoral ministers, of people who could go to church uh, throughout their lives and never really understand the primary truth of justification, that by faith in Christ, our sins are pardoned and we're legally righteous in the sight of God. One aberration after another. The church today is in very difficult straits, and she's in difficult straits because of a refusal to live by the laws of her king. Now that's also true as we come closer to home in our own reformed denominations. When we begin to veer away from our constitutional commitment, the Bible as the inspired word of God, and our confession of faith and catechisms as the summary of the doctrine that we say that we believe and are going to teach, chaos also reigns in our midst. And so as we come to the point here of trying to establish another uh, Presbyterian church in Spartanburg, Greenville County area. Uh, it's a very apt text that's before us tonight. It's a text that drives us back to uh, foundational principles and presuppositions of what we must be about as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to show you tonight. Now, the text is primarily directed to ministers of the gospel, but as you will see, there's much here for every one of us in these wise, inspired words of the Apostle Paul. What we have in this last paragraph of chapter 1 is a conclusion of the first section of Paul's epistle. When we began, I told you we we're going to look at 1 Timothy because here we learn about the church, what God wants the church to be. And in the very first chapter, what God wants a gospel minister to be, to do, to look like. And then we'll move on to the church's goals, to the church at worship, to the church's officers, and many practical details in the life of the church. 
But in this first chapter, as Paul begins reminding Timothy of why he left him in Ephesus, he left him there to deal with false teachers, and that is to expose them, but also by the contrast of teaching the truth. So he says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. He develops then the use of the law, two uses really, the law as it is for those outside of Christ, the law as it's part of the gospel is the lamp unto our feet, but to show us a contrast to false teachers, why God gave us law. And as he concluded that section in verse 11, thinking about himself according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, he takes a little digression. He cannot think about the fact that he's been entrusted with the gospel without reflecting on God's grace in his life. So he gives this testimony of grace, of God saving him, uh, this blasphemous, persecuting sinner. He makes a, a, a confession of that faith and this trustworthy statement that is for all of us. And then he responds with a glorious doxology of praise. But now in our paragraph, he returns to where he started with Timothy when he says, This command I entrust to you, he's picking back up on verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure. And what I want to show you from this last paragraph, verses 18 through 20, that the gospel minister is to labor with confidence, maintaining a good conscience so as to remain faithful. The gospel minister is to labor with confidence, maintaining a good conscience so as to remain faithful. We'll consider three things from this paragraph, the confidence of the gospel minister, the responsibility of the gospel minister, and a warning to the gospel minister. In the first half of verse 18, we begin by looking at the confidence of the gospel minister. Look at those words. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, the commandment to which Paul refers is taken, as I said, back to the earlier part of the chapel. It's a chapter. It's a twofold commandment. It is to deal with the false teachers, to correct them, to instruct them, and to instruct the church itself then about the error of the false teachers, but also to instruct the church in the purposes of the truth of God. The goal of all of our teaching, says Paul, is love to God and to our neighbor. And that love flows from uh, a pure heart, a, a good conscience, and sincere faith. So Paul's returning now to that, uh, reminding Timothy of why he left them in Ephesus. Now, as we learn a little bit about Timothy later on in 2 Timothy, uh, he appears to be a bit of a timid man, a bit diffident. And uh, he would want to shrink back from the confrontations that would be demanded by his office, by these things that Paul has called him to do. And so Paul is calling him now to faithfulness in the exercise of his office. But notice the gentleness of the father to the son. I entrust to you, or I command you, this command I entrust you, Timothy, my son. Now earlier he had addressed him as my true or our true child in the faith. And the apostle's gentleness in admonition and rebuke is a, a very good example to us. We think of our Savior. It says that um, 
He never crushed a bruised reed. He wouldn't clinch a, a smoldering flame. It, you look at him and deal with his disciples and his gentleness and his patience with their stupidity and blindness. And then we see how Paul is addressing young Timothy. And this should be the primary mark for us in the pulpit, that we're not to rant and rave and pound over the head. Yes, we are to call you to repentance and faith in Christ. We are to exhort you and, and call you to forsake sin. But we're to do so with this gentleness. And as we deal with one another, we're called to do that, as you know. Not to gossip about one another, but to go to one another. But we need to do so not in self-righteous pride, but always to deal with one another gently, as Paul deals here with Timothy gently. So he reminds him uh, that he has entrusted these things to Timothy. It's a very important word in, in this epistle. This commandment, I've entrusted to you. It is, it is a trust, a stewardship, as we saw previously, that Paul has delivered to Timothy. And he, Timothy needs now to persevere in that responsibility, particularly of dealing with the false teachers, but also instructing the congregation in sound doctrine. But Paul wants Timothy to know that there is a great resource for him. And thus he reminds him of his ordination. This command I entrust to you, verse 18, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. And by this phrase, the prophecies previously made concerning you, Paul is reminding Timothy of what God had done in Timothy's life to set him aside to the gospel ministry. And we read in Acts chapter 14 that uh, as Paul made his second missionary journey, he visited the churches we had been before he got to Lystra, and there the elders at Lystra urged him to take Timothy with him as a fellow laborer in the gospel. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul actually spells out for us what occurred on that occasion. He says in verse 14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance, with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. So when he says here in abbreviated form, that which by prophecy you have received, he is making Timothy think about that day in his life when the Holy Spirit, through the church, led the church to set Timothy aside to the gospel ministry. In doing so then, the elders, the presbytery, a group of elders, not an individual, the elders laid hands on him. And by that process, the Lord Jesus Christ set Timothy apart to the office of being a gospel minister. Now, we don't do that by prophecy any longer. But ordination is as real today as it was then. And Christ is still working in His church in order to set men aside to the ministry. Our larger catechism, I think it's 158, says, Who is it that are preached the word? Those who are gifted and are appointed and called. Appointed and called by Christ through the church. So in the regular process today, a man will step forward and he thinks he has gifts. He has a desire to go into the ministry. He'll go to his, his elders. Uh, he'll ask to be uh, tested. Uh, they'll test him. He'll go to Presbytery to be tested, to come under care, to be licensed. And at some period of time then, as the 
is the church looks at him and they see those gifts, the congregation will call him and he will be examined by presbytery and then there'll be this service where the elders lay on hands. And that is an ordination. It's not a mere ceremony. No, it is Christ doing something through the elders of the church. We're reflecting in that ordination that Christ is setting this man aside to the gospel ministry. And when that happens, Christ then uh, confirms the gifts of a man. He often accentuates and intensifies the gifts of a man. And he puts an authority upon that man. It's very important. It was important for Timothy to remember this. It's important for us to remember this from two angles. In Timothy's case, prone to diffidence and timidity, Paul is saying, remember, Timothy, you are an office bearer of Christ. You don't act in your own person when you teach and preach. You're acting under the authority of your office. Now, we all understand office. If a highway patrolman pulls us over, he's got on his uniform, the blue light's going around, we know he's coming to us with authority. We might know him from the neighborhood. But now he comes to us as an office bearer, and he has a responsibility to enforce the law. And so a minister of the gospel has this authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the exercise of his office, not amongst the congregation, not to lord it over the sheep, but in the pulpit ministry, the formal teaching of the church, we do so then with a unique authority. Paul said, Timothy, remember, remember who you are. Remember that Christ is the one who has set you aside to this task. That's important for you young men or some of you older men who will be going into the ministry to understand this. Um, that um, at times you'll want to draw back. At times you'll be fearful of what is before you. But you remember this reminder of Scripture. It's the king of the church who sets you aside. But you as church members also need to keep this in mind. If ours is a day that dislikes authority. We see it all around us. But uh, Christ has appointed authority in the church, not to lord it over you, but in the exercise of office, in the pulpit ministry of the minister, in the rule of the elders, in the service of the deacons, they all act in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an authority that you need to respect and you need to be willing to submit to as you actually vow in your membership vows that you submit to the authority of the church. Now, if the authority, and I'll come back to this, acts, or the authoritative ones act unbiblically, then you don't submit. But there's a procedure by which you deal with that. But it's a great encouragement both to the minister as it was to Timothy, but to the congregation as well. Because you see, it's Christ who's acting here to place faithful shepherds, as we read in Ezekiel, shepherds of his choice, as he himself, the over-shepherd, will shepherd his flock through the ministers whom he appoints. And thus, the ministers should have a confidence, and we should have a confidence in the ministry. But to have confidence in the ministry, we need to see this second thing, and that is the responsibility of the gospel minister. Now, it seems that grammatically that um, the, the charge that Paul gives Timothy does end with... Uh, do that which I have entrusted to you. And now the next half of the verse, beginning with the word that, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience. Uh, here Paul now is saying, how does one conduct himself 
in this exercise of office that has been given by the Lord to the gospel ministry. And Paul uses the figure of a soldier. It was one of Paul's favorite figures. At the end of his ministry, he described his own ministry in this way in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 8, uh, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. And the future is laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He saw himself as a soldier. By his appointment and ordination, he was enlisted into the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls Timothy to understand that in the exercise of his office. Uh, earlier in 2 Timothy 2, addressing ministers, he says in verses 3 and 4, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What does it mean that the minister is a soldier? But also implies that all of us are soldiers. Well, Paul spells this out for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, so stand firm. So when Paul uses the, the imagery of a soldier, he has in mind that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Satan, a dark and evil kingdom run by Satan and demons. It's the very essence of the world around us. And there's the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all belong to one or the other of these kingdoms. And Paul is saying, if you belong to the kingdom of Christ, then you're involved in a spiritual warfare. Now, on the front line of this spiritual warfare are the ministers of the gospel and the office bearers in the church. We're not like the generals in World War I that stayed back in bunkers and had millions of men ruined and murdered. No, a gospel minister must be at the front, aware that we have a warfare that goes beyond anything the world can begin to imagine for the hearts and souls of men, for the very existence of families, and for the saving of people from the bondage of hell and eternal damnation. And thus we must fight this fight. But every one of us must fight this fight. You see, if you are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Paul is addressing you in Ephesians chapter 6. You also are involved in this. You've got that own, we all have it, the, the warfare with our own lust that's yet within us. A constant daily warfare to put to death the sin that's within us. And the world system around us that is constantly cajoling and pushing and seeking to press us into its mold and where Satan takes the world around us and uses that to entice our lust as he himself then works in, in various and malicious ways to cause us to fall into sin. We're in a spiritual warfare. 
And we're in that warfare from the very first day of our conversion. Until Christ takes us safely to himself at death. And finally, when he comes and makes all things perfect in his second coming. And so we are to fight as soldiers. But we as ministers, again, must recognize that this is a very strenuous calling. I had a, I love this poster, and I, I go over to Newburn every year, and I got some Marines to get it for me. They can't use it any longer. It's not politically correct. But anyway, the, the poster is a recruiting poster for the Marines. It's this big old burly recruiting sergeant and this little recruit, and he's staring down at him, and he said, Son, we didn't promise you a rose garden. All we want is a few good men. What Christ is saying. Do you think the ministry is going to be a rose garden? One of those idyllic uh, 19th century novels where you can sit in your parish and read books and plant flowers and, and do those kind of things. No, and that's why so many men drop out of the ministry. Within five years, over half the men ordained are out of the ministry. They don't realize this is a battle. It's strenuous. It's the most difficult, call, call, difficult calling in the world. And yet it is the most glorious calling in the world. But you must recognize that you've been called to soldier on, to be a good soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ, as all of us are. But again, as Christ calls us to this through Paul, he reminds us how we're to conduct ourselves. Um, and he tells us that we're to do so with two things. So he says that we are to fight the good fight, as soldiers of Christ, keeping faith and a good conscience. So how is it then that as soldiers of Christ, a minister, how is it that you, as one involved in this spiritual warfare, how are you going to do this? Well, in the first place, Paul says, by keeping faith. Now, as he uses faith here, he's speaking primarily of our subjective faith of our faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not do this in our own strength and might. We do it resting in Christ, depending upon Christ, using the means that Christ has given unto us in order to fulfill our callings as ministers and as Christians. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, we see what faith does then, because Christ has provided for us everything that we need. And so as Paul reminds us of this battle, he then says in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having your loins, your waist parts, girded about with truth, that you are, are bolstered up by the truth of the Word of God, good doctrine. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that you're covered with the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then are growing in righteousness. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, one of the best ways to grow in grace is to share the gospel. Isn't that what he's saying? In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the hope Christ in you, the hope of glory, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So you see, Christ has provided for us the armor for this warfare to which he has called us. And when you read in the Old Testament, you'll see that Christ tested all these different pieces of armor. And now his spirit provides them to us. Christ has tested them and purchased them for us. 
And now the Spirit equips us with these things. And we see their role here in equipping us. So when he says you do this uh, holding faith, it's faith in Christ who will give you all that's necessary in your daily struggles against sin and temptation, in the work of ministry, we rest in Christ, we use the means of grace, we pray, we depend, and we labor on. And then he talks about having a good conscience. He's returning again with faith and conscience to what he said there earlier uh, in chapter 5, that the goal of our instruction is uh, love from um, a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Let me remind you what a good conscience is, because you are to hold to a good conscience in your warfare. Now remember, conscience is a thing, so to speak, that God put in Adam as the image bearer of God. In Adam's case, it was the, the complete transcript of the law of God, written on his heart, by which he would just automatically know the will of God. God would add to that verbal revelation to Adam as well. But Adam had a conscience that would guide him. God would guide him through that good conscience. When Adam fell into sin, his conscience was perverted. So all of his descendants then have a perverted conscience, a bad conscience, but with sufficient light. Every man, woman, boy, and girl knows enough of the will of God in conscience to be condemned to hell forever. And people ask the question, well, why do people go to hell that haven't heard the gospel? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 2. Because their conscience bears witness to them, and they refuse it. Now, when we're born again, God cleanses the conscience, and He puts His law now back into our hearts. Not in the perfect way it was in Adam's heart. But now, as promised in the new covenant, the law of God written on our hearts, our conscience is now cleansed from defilement and the burden of guilt, begin to reflect the mind of God. So tonight, every one of you here either has a bad conscience or a good conscience. Your bad conscience will be if you're outside of Christ. Your conscience is my ally because I know that your conscience bears witness to you that you are under God's wrath and condemnation. Well, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after judgment. Why are people afraid to death? Isn't that been an amazing thing about COVID? Is to see how fearful our neighbors are about dying. But why? Because the conscience is bearing witness. You're under God's wrath. You're coming to judgment and you have no hope. But you see, I offer you hope. And the hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. If your conscience is condemning you, if you know that you're lost and undone, your life is miserable, you're a lawbreaker, Christ says, turn to me in repentance, take hold of me in faith, and I will save you. And as he saves us, he renews our conscience. And it begins to function then in us as a good conscience. Now, in the minister, this would entail three things. Now, the first one would apply to all of us, and that is the good conscience testifies to us with respect to our behavior. Is it good behavior or is it sinful behavior? And Peter um, reflects on the conscience in 1 Peter chapter 3, as he calls us to maintain 
a good conscience. Keep a good conscience, verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And so our conscience will bear witness to us of our behavior. Is it consistent with God's word or is it contrary to God's word? And so to keep a good conscience is then to seek to obey God according to his word. Now, Paul also develops a good conscience in terms of the gospel ministry. He does so two places in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about his conscience uh, in the ministry, uh, and where he says then, uh, verse 12, our proud, confidence is the test our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially toward you. Paul could appeal to his conscience for his motives, that they were gospel motives, and for the conduct of his ministry. He expanded on this in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart, but have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You see, Paul labored with a good conscience. And he calls the gospel minister to labor with a good conscience, to keep himself from sin, to guard his motives, and to be faithful in the proclamation of the truth. All of us are called to keep our consciences good. Three ways you can keep your conscience good. The first is make sure it's instructed. It is perverted because of the fall, because of a life of sin. You've suppressed it. And so you come to the Word of God as you read the Scriptures each day and study them. You want God to teach you His law, His ways, and to instruct your conscience. Next, you must obey your conscience. Paul says, what's not of faith is sin. And so we must then uh, heed what God would say to us. And even if our consciences are skewed, we must not act against them. We must get them rightly instructed. And then you must confess your sin. When conscience does bring you to a reminder of sin, you don't suppress that and hold over it, but rather you ask forgiveness of God and of anyone against whom or before whom you sinned. That's how we're to conduct the ministry. Yes, we're soldiers, but soldiers holding to faith, holding to a good conscience. But then Paul wants us to have this warning. Conscience is so important. So having shown us the confidence and responsibility, he gives a warning to the gospel minister in the second half of verse 19 and in verse 20. So he says, keep a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul here shows us the danger of rejecting our conscience, of hardening our conscience. This word reject means to deny, to ignore, to, to throw aside. So God testifies through conscience about your behavior, and particularly here about your doctrine and beliefs, and you reject it. You throw it out of hand. And notice the description, you will suffer shipwreck in regard to faith. Now, faith here has to do both with the doctrine that's held to and with personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you harden your conscience against God, ministers, members of the church, you are in danger of suffering shipwreck. Paul knew a lot about shipwreck. He tells us biographically. In his day, there was probably a few things more fearful than shipwreck. I recently read a, a naval novel and it talked about the entrance to the harbor of Lisbon and there's a terrible reef there and the pilot has to come out and take them through at the appropriate time. And, and they asked him, what, ha talk, what happens if, if you hit the reef? He says, the ship is wrecked. He spoke about a specific ship that was wrecked. And they said, were all destroyed? No, but those that survived were disfigured. That's the idea of shipwreck, you see. Destruction, disfiguration, a ruin of faith, a ruin of life, a ruin of doctrine. It's dangerous not to listen to your conscience as it's instructed by Scripture. It's dangerous to harden yourself where you're in danger of suffering shipwreck. And then to drive it home, Paul gives a very... Um, Clear example. Among these who've suffered shipwreck of their faith are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus, he talks about in 2 Timothy 2, he was teaching that their resurrection had already occurred. Alexander's probably Alexander the coppersmith, who Paul says caused me much problems when I was in Ephesus. These men hardened themselves against the light of Scripture. And in doing so, they suffered shipwreck of their faith, of their doctrine, of their lives. As Paul said, because of that, they were excommunicated. He says, he turned them over to Satan. Excommunication is a very important truth taught in Scripture. Paul teaches it himself, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Thessalonians, the last chapter, uh, and it is that final act of church discipline by which a person is removed from the fellowship of light and the church, and Paul says here, handed over to Satan. It doesn't happen quickly. There's a process of admonition, rebuke, of suspension from uh, the Lord's table. But if a person hardens himself in sins of behavior or doctrine, he then is put out of the church. But now notice here, that is no mild thing. Paul says twice, once before in 1 Corinthians 5 and here, that person is handed over to Satan. This is an act of Christ the King in his church. And if the church acts consistently with the Word of God, the person is delivered over to Satan. The destruction of the flesh, he says in 1 Corinthians 5, here that they'll be taught not to blaspheme. Now again, as we are organizing this church, you people need to understand the importance of the doctrine of church discipline. It is a gift of Christ to the church. It has a number of purposes. One, as we see here, is to restore a, a, a professor who has fallen into immorality or wrong doctrine. It's for the honor of Christ's name. It's for the reputation of the church in the world. It's for the well-being of the body of Christ, to purge out the leaven. It's necessary. But so many times, Pastor Robbins told me that every time, and that session has been so faithful, very careful, but faithful. Every time they've excommunicated somebody, a person has left the church. Every time. Now, in their case, they've seen a number of people repent and be restored, and we praise God for that. But understand, if you're going to be here, and if a person like that is dealt with by the session, then this is an act of love and mercy, as well as justice, an act of Christ. It's, well, it's for the well-being 
You spank your children. If you had gangrene in your leg, you would want the doctor to cut it off rather than to die from it. It's sometimes necessary for the sparing of life. But it is solemn. And it's what happens. Given over to Satan, if you harden your heart, and ministers who are unfaithful in their teaching, compromising in their lives, falling into sin, even if they're not in churches that will do with them faithfully, Christ are going to hand them over to this judgment. Paul says later that uh, many will be judged now, but the judgment will follow all after their death. And so, you men who will be gospel ministers, you see here, and what Paul says, that uh, you can labor with confidence, but you must maintain a good conscience in order to remain faithful. And so seek to have hearts that are close to God, that are walking uh, according to His law, and that are seeking faithfully to teach His Word and not to compromise it. There will always been temptations to compromise. Well, this person's not going to like that doctrine, or this person's not going to like that application. Well, you must answer to Lord Jesus Christ. I can promise you, with respect to this church, that we will always seek to conduct ourselves according to the holiness of God's law. And you will never hear anything from this pulpit that's contrary to the received doctrine of our church. Now, that does not call for implicit faith. If you hear something and you wonder about it, you're to examine what you hear by Scripture. But when you have something you wonder about, then you come to me. You say, now, what did you mean by that? Can you show me more from Scripture about that? And don't just run off huffing and puffing. Moreover, then, you pray for the ministry today of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would have mercy and give us the grace and strength that we need. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.